friends. Welcome to the 12th episode of 20 Minutes with Bronwyn. Oh my gosh, I feel pretty proud. This has been so much fun. And I thank you, all of you who have downloaded and listened and rated and shared the love and asked me questions and sent encouragement. It means more than I can even say. And if you've noticed over these past 11 episodes, I'm a big believer in authenticity and in doing all of the inner work required to show up as your whole self, as big you, right? But there's this one little thing I've kind of neglected to mention, which I'm going to be talking about in great detail today. And that is this one truth. While authenticity And all of that good stuff is, of course, central to our ability to shine. All the authenticity in the world ain't going to help you if you don't honor this one unfortunate truth right now. And that is this. People are having a really hard time paying attention to you when you talk. (laughs) And I mean, everybody. People are tuning in and out constantly. And while the statement I just made feels true, for sure, or as as Stephen Colbert used to call it, it's very truthy, research is actually starting to stack up to support that assertion. In his Pulitzer-nominated book, The Shallows, which if you haven't read it, it is so good and so well-researched, Nicholas Carr makes a really persuasive argument that not only is technology eroding our attention spans, it's literally rewiring the structure of the brain itself. In his book, he makes a lot of claims, but I think the most important claim is that we are losing our capacity to focus and we're becoming dependent on the cheap hits of dopamine that get delivered to us on the regular thanks to Instagram likes or Facebook likes or emails that blink or whatever. Y'all, we are lab rats these days. Another piece of research that I came across that really put a finer point on it for me came from Professor Gloria Mark and her team in the Department of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. Shout outs to the OC. She and her team tracked how often a group of information workers switched focus on the job. So in 2004, these workers switched their attention every three minutes on average. But in 2012, quote, we found that the time spent on one computer screen before switching to another computer screen was one minute, 15 seconds. So in 2004, the average was three minutes before they were tempted to switch tasks. In 2012, it was down to 1 minute 15 seconds. But by the summer of 2014, it had dropped to 59.5 seconds. So think about that for a minute. From three minutes of focus to less than a minute of focus, in about the span of a dozen years, same amount of time it took for us to make our phones part of our appendages, this is massive erosion of attention span. Microsoft came up with this really inflammatory piece of research, but I kind of love it because (laughs) because it's dramatic. And Microsoft found that the average human attention span is now shorter than that of a goldfish. Because a goldfish will pay attention to something for eight full seconds. Humans, seven. 
Now, to be fair, the Microsoft study was a much smaller sample set. You could probably poke holes in the quality of the research. But the point is pretty freaking true. We can't pay attention. And yet, we go into meetings and we present in this kind of ho-hum, here's what the, the objectives and goals. And I mean, it's enough to make you want to drill a hole in your skull. I mean, think about the last meeting you were in. It doesn't have to be corporate. It could be at, you know, back to school night or book club or whatever. We communicate as if nobody has anything better to do than hang on our every word, right? Doesn't it feel like we do that sometimes? And it's real dangerous. It's real dangerous because the opposite is actually true. Eight seconds feels generous. Seven seconds feels like an exaggeration because I don't know about you, but three seconds, if something's boring, I'm thinking about what's for dinner, right? So as communicators, we are up against a monumentally hard task. And that task is how the hell do you keep people off their cell phones while you're talking? How the hell do you get people to stop from spacing out long enough to process what you're saying? That's the task, right? And where does that leave us? So does does that mean that, you know, we have to resort to pyrotechnics or nudity or violence every time we get up to say something? I mean, is the collective IQ and EQ crashing just like the attention spans? Here's what I believe. I think the opposite is true. I think that while attention spans have never been shorter and more hideous, I think audiences have never been smarter, right? I read this brilliant quote from a book by Robert McKee called Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting. Robert McKee is a freaking legend. I mean, everybody in Hollywood knows him. He's a dream. And the quote goes like this, the audience is not only amazingly sensitive, but as it settles into a darkened theater, its collective IQ jumps 25 points. When you go to the movies, don't you often feel you're more intelligent than what you're watching? That you know what the characters are going to do before they do? I have found the same to be true of audiences everywhere. They are smart, emotionally astute, and ready for us to lay down some wisdom. End quote. Yes, Robert McKee preach. So here's the thing. While it's true that people can't pay attention for longer than eight seconds or a minute, depending on what research you want to believe, it is also true that people are binge-watching Game of Thrones for hours at a time, or Westworld, or Real Housewives of whatever the hell, right? In an interview with Linda Sievertson on the Beautiful Writers Podcast, if you're a writer, you should be listening to that podcast, it's killer, she actually interviewed Robert McKee. And he calls that phenomenon, that willingness to binge listen or binge read or binge watch, McKee calls that phenomenon the interest span. And people, that is where the action is. As communicators, we cannot win the attention span game. It's not even worth playing, but we can win the interest span game. We just have to know how to play it. So today... And for the next few episodes, I'm going to tell you everything I know about playing that game. And the way we're going to do it is I'm going to ask you to think about a presentation that you have to give or an update you have to give in a scary client meeting or something that that you can use as 
a focus point for these exercises and these ideas. Because what I found is that when you just speak hypothetically about this stuff, people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's great. huh?" And then they go back to doing what they've always done, which is the ho-hum stuff. No, choose something to work on. Press pause right now if you need a minute to think, okay, what can I do? I don't care if it's, you know, you might have a big hairy board presentation that you're freaked out about. Great. Let's use that. Or you might be like, oh my God, I get dreadfully nervous in book club. How am I going to give my recap and my opinion in less than three minutes and do it well? Great. Use that. I don't care. Same skill, same approach, same process, whether you're planning for a TED talk or you're planning to give a two minute update in a meeting, it's the same. Okay. So we're going to play in the interest span. We're going to learn how to live in the interest span. There's a couple of steps that I use to guide clients through the process of planning a talk for the interest span. And step one is to dream a little bit. I call it the dream stage. And my favorite quote that frames this part of the process perfectly comes from Gloria Steinem. Quote, without leaps of imagination or dreaming, We lose the excitement of possibilities. Dreaming, after all, is a form of planning. And when I'm with a client, I won't even allow any electronics, no laptops, no PowerPoint, no keynote, no nothing, until we've gone through this dreaming envisioning stage. The value of dreaming about an upcoming presentation or a talk is that it gives you a chance to have an ideal vision for what you're aiming at. If everything goes well, what does that look like? And don't worry, I'll give you a chance to envision all of the nightmare scenarios too, because you know that's fear showing up to be helpful, because there might be some things you could do to head some of those issues off at the past, right? But what we want to do is start by having a vision. And I find that having a vision begins with having a good intention. Now, the right intention is not Sometimes I'll sit down with somebody, let's say they're an author, and I'll be like, okay, what's your intention for this talk, for your book tour talk or whatever it is? And they'll be like, okay, my intention is to sell bedrillions of copies, get on Super Soul Sundays with Oprah, and have a private jet within 10 years. That is, that's not what I mean. That's not a good intention. That's your ego. That's little me, right? Right intention is more questions like, What does success look like for this audience? What is the highest act of service I can provide here, right? What gift can I give these people that they will walk out of this room thinking, God, I'm glad I know that. God, I can't wait to try this out, right? That energy of giving, of emptying yourself out in devotion to an audience will set the perfect tone and will will force you to focus on something a little bit bigger and outside of yourself. And it will lead to more interesting approaches and ways of expressing whatever message you decide to land on, right? So first is, what is get right with your intention. What does success look like for this audience? What is the highest act of service I can provide here? And then I want you to start getting in the habit of asking yourself, what skills am I going to use this particular opportunity to work on? Why would I say that? Why is that important? Because you know what it does? It takes the pressure off the audience. Sometimes we are so goddamn needy, right? If I don't get this, you know, if this meeting doesn't end in a signed contract, I have failed. 
Oh my God, that is putting so much pressure on an audience over which you have no control. You may have influence. You have no control. You don't know who else you're talking to. You don't know what other factors are in play. You're setting yourself up for complete annihilating disappointment, right? But if instead you focus on serving them, creating a bond in a relationship that way outlasts that meeting or that talk... Now you're on to something. And part of that spirit is saying, you know what? This talk isn't about manipulating an outcome or being dependent on something I can't control. This talk is about me using this opportunity to test out my best storytelling skills. Or, you know what? This meeting is going to be all about me working really hard on listening, on learning that art of talking and room reading at the same time. That's what I'm going to use this opportunity for. That kind of thing. The magic of that is that you start to take so much pride and so much, there's so much energy and creativity and fun that get baked into the process of dreaming up the talk. It's not on the audience to do what you want them to do. It's on you to grow and stretch and give. And that's a killer way to start. So once you've gotten right with these intentions, with the core, the soul of your talk, you realize that this is a really big difference from how we've been implicitly, not explicitly, taught to plan a talk. And I I make that point implicit versus explicit because most of us haven't been told or taught how to give a talk. I mean, at all. There's like, if even if you took speech and debate in high school or college, they'll teach you different styles, different formats. Like here's a persuasive talk, here's a, a storytelling talk, here's a this, here's a that. But they don't tell you how to choose. They don't tell you how to think about the opportunity. We're all flying blind, mostly. And so in that absence of instruction, what we usually default to is, what do I want to say? What do I want to get out of this? Me, 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 me. Little me has dominated how we plan our talks. I'm convinced of this. I know it was true for me. So that first phase of that dreaming stage is intention. But the next phase of the dreaming phase, step two, if you will, of the dreaming phase is getting crystal clear on your audience. There's that, you know, platitude we've all heard 19 trillion times, know thy audience. And usually what I find people do is they go, okay, I'll ask the conference planner or I'll ask the person, you know, who are these people? Like, what's their title? How many people? What do you think they're into? That kind of thing. That is not good enough. We want to get way more granular. We want to know exactly who is in the room. Now, if you're speaking to an audience of 500, granted, you're going to have to think in terms of categories of thinking or predispositions, things like that. But most of the time, we know exactly who is in the room. Exactly, down to the title. And once you write, I mean, literally, I will often with clients, if it's like less than 10 people or less than five people... I will have us go name by name and say, okay, who's Bill? What does he need? Okay, what about Cheryl? What does she need, right? Go through and write down what do these people need? If you have more than five people and that's not a legit sort of practical way to go, go with this. Who are the likely skeptics in the room? And why are they going to be skeptical? What evidence do they need to start seeing things from my point of view? Or what reasons do they have for their skepticism? What legit reasons do they have? And how might you meet them there? Not to manipulate them out of their beliefs, but to have an honest engagement with them around their skepticism. 
this is a sidebar, but I have seen many a person fall apart because as they're in front of the room, they see somebody's face and it's like twisted up in that contorted skeptic's face and they completely lose their marbles on stage because that face feels like an attack, right? That limbic system thing kicks in where it's fight, flight, or freeze and you register this face as criticism and you completely go off the rails. I have seen it happen and it is not cute. It's not pretty. In fact, now that I'm talking about it, it happened to me in high school. Mr. Welch Stamos, I was giving, I was giving him a book report that I was completely bullshitting. He had every reason to look at me like I was from Mars, but I will never forget that moment. I like completely started sweating and I lost my place and it was a mess. Anyway, my point is skeptics don't have to be scary. I want you to start seeing skeptics not as attackers with their attack faces or their attack questions. I want you to see them as powerful allies. I like to call them audience angels because if you can engage with a skeptic rationally, calmly, show them that you understand, validate their position still represent your position, but meet them where they are. If you can do that, you have just won yourself a lifetime advocate, somebody that will go to bat for you, somebody that will stand up for you, somebody that will promote you internally, wherever they are. Skeptics are the spice of life. Now, you may, after engaging with the skeptic, find out that they're really just hecklers and that they're just trying to fuck with you, which is, you know, it's another personality type. Then you can move on. But most of the time, skeptics are just people for whom unpacking an argument or tearing down an argument is literally part of their learning process. It's how they operate. It's nothing personal. So when you think about an audience and the skeptics in the audience, learn to fall in love with them because they will be there for you forever if you win them over. Okay. Sorry. Side note, super important. Back to audience motivation. So let's say you think, okay, well, who are the skeptics in the room and how do I meet them and give them what they need? Also, you want to ask, who are the fans? Who are the likely fans in the group? How can I meet their need for sound bites, for repeatable information so they can go sing my praises or tweet how amazing I am, right? Or how do I boil down what I've just said in a one, you know, single page document they can then take and use forever and ever. Amen. Right. What can you do to meet the needs of the fans? I also love asking what existing perceptions am I dealing with and how can I mess with those perceptions right up in front? In fact, I just recently gave a talk and I worked it out ahead of time with the woman who was planning the talk and who asked me to come in and she wanted me to come in and talk about balance. And I immediately was like, God, if I were in that audience and some queen was coming up in the room to talk about balance, I would want to punch her in the face. Because, I mean, honestly, we're already tied up in knots in our culture about achievement and everything else. Balance is just one more thing that we have to do that feels hard, right? So I was like, how do I mess with that perception? So I had this person introduce me and say, okay, Bronwyn's going to talk about balance. And the first thing out of my mouth is I said, well, I'm here to tell you about balance. And my belief about balance is that it is a lie. It is a filthy, hideous lie that we've been given. It's yet another goddamn tightrope that we're expected to walk. And I'm over it. Can I get an amen? I love playing with audience perceptions that way. It's like the art of surprise, right? It's surprising people. That's another brilliant way to get right with audience motivations. I also love asking, what does the audience need to unlearn? right? So you've chosen your talk theoretically 
if you're doing the work with me here, you've chosen your talk to work on. We've just gone through step one of planning that talk, and it's the dream stage of planning. I've asked you to set an intention by asking some interesting questions of yourself, and I've asked you to get real clear about who's in the room and what they need. And by the way, if you don't know, ask. Most of the time you can find this stuff out, right? Get as much information as you can. So I'm going to pause there, my friends, and we will pick this up next week. But in the meantime, dream a little dream, y'all. Come up with that vision. Get right with your intention and pour yourself out in devotion to that audience. And next week, we'll get pen to paper, I promise. Okay, you guys, that's it for this week. As always, I love hearing from you. I love knowing what you want me to talk about. If there's stuff you wish I'd cover, if there's questions you have that you're always wanted to ask, but you're too embarrassed, there is no such thing as an embarrassing question. Go on my website, bronwyncommunications.com, drop me a note, let me know, and shine on you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time. <laughs>